0: Well hello and welcome to the 12th lesson in this quarter focusing in on Nehemiah and Ezra and this particular lesson is a hone in on dealing with bad decisions and specifically to do with bad marriage decisions it seems with two particular verses coming to the foreground that is Deuteronomy 7 and verse 3 and 4 which is talking about turning the sons away from uh, following God by being given to idolatrous wives and wives of a foreign descent and religion. And secondarily, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14 condemning the unequally yoked relationships. But don't be too discouraged. It's not all bad. It winds up with referring to First Corinthians 7 and verses 10 to 17 and the encouragement that there is grace Sufficient and purpose within those relationships that have been formed. On an unequally yoked basis. Now it's important to clarify from the outset before I forget that the lesson study was not at all suggesting that uh, there should be no marriage between uh, people of different ethnicities as much as it is referring to relationships that are formed on the basis of an unequally yoked circumstance of faith, as in two people coming together to get married that are of a completely different religion and therefore direction. In life. And from the outset, I was rebuked from Ezra chapter 9 and verse 6, which is the memory text. And the memory text says these words. And I said, "O my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. Now, this is in reference to Ezra's reaction when he hears of those who have set up illegitimate marriages with those of a uh, differing religious perspective particularly those in leadership positions. And the reason why I say that I am rebuked by these verses is primarily because when I hear of other people's uh, poor decision making and the consequences that they are suffering or that I know that they will suffer, uh, I don't feel the same level of empathy that Ezra does where he tears his clothes apart and uh, falls on the ground in sackcloth and ashes as he's just cognizant of uh, the, the, you know, the detriment that these decisions will have on the people that have made the decisions as well as them as a nation. And he just wears that himself. And the way that he talks about it, you know, our iniquities, our rebellion essentially have grown up higher than the heavens. And I am ashamed to lift my face to you. And I am just of the mindset, usually that like, if it comes down to it, yeah, no, that, that sucks for you, but I'm all good. I'm still sweet with God, you know? Um, and I think it's a rebuke to us as, as people that, realistically, we should have a much greater uh, interconnectivity between ourselves and those in leadership, those not in leadership, just as a body of believers rather than as individual parts. And I think this is what's highlighted by Ezra's response, even though he's not directly implicated in the poor decisions uh, surrounding those marriages. Now, moving straight on into Sunday's lesson, we're going to read the first couple of verses that are referenced there in Nehemiah chapter 13 and verses 23 to 25 as we look at Nehemiah's reaction to uh, hearing of the intermarriage of those of a non-Hebrew descent Uh, with those who were. So Nehemiah chapter 13 and verses 23 to 25 say these words, In those days I also saw Jews who married women of Ashdod and Ammon and Moab, and half their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one or the other people. So I contended with them, And cursed them struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God saying you will not give your daughters as wives to their sons nor take their daughters for your sons or yourselves now, I think it's really important that we sort of sit back and take stock of this in the sense that at first it appears as though Nehemiah is being pretty arbitrary and pretty forceful uh, when it comes down to actually pulling the beard hairs out of people's faces and beating on people. It kind of feels like the, the most barbaric form of capital punishment that we've seen in recent times, but we have to take into account that in this day and in this age that we're in the context of, it was normal for people to be publicly uh, humiliated and publicly um, reprimanded, so as for them to realise the consequences of their actions. Now, to give it some context here, as as solemn as as sorry not. Solomon Nehemiah here references the story of Solomon thereafter in verses 26, and he says, "'Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations there was no king like him, who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, pagan women caused him even to sin.'" should we then hear of your doing all this great evil, transgressing against God by marrying pagan women? And the point here is quite profound. He's basically saying, like, what are you doing? Can you not recognize where we've come from? These last 70 years of oppression and Babylonian and slavery has all come about as a result of Solomon at the start and then his um, his descendants thereafter uh, in, in taking pagan uh, marriages and forming these marriages without taking into account God's plan or will for his people. And now we're hearing of you guys doing the same thing. This is ridiculous. And so he then goes on to administer, in one sense, a a stopgap to prevent them from having to realize the full consequences of their actions by punishing them in a physical sense. See, this is what punishment actually is, in essence. Punishment is essentially getting in the way of somebody realizing the end result of their decision-making. And we have the example of Lucifer to reflect upon in this, that we can see one little sin of pride and admiration for himself led to what we now suffer 6,000 years on in a world locked in rebellion. More and more, we see one little sin compromising to another little sin and inevitably ending up with the consequences which we now live in in this sin-sick world. So while it may appear as a little bit, intense for Nehemiah to be responding in such a physical way at the same time he's trying to prevent them from compromising leading to compromising and inevitably the destruction of them as a people it's important to clarify i think at this point in time that while he was cursing them as the verse says that he was contending against them and cursing them i don't think that this was him you know swearing at them and yelling abuses I think this was more along the lines of him coming to them with the curses that God had proclaimed would take place as a consequence to their actions if they didn't heed to his principles and the integrity with which he was leading them towards. It's also important to note that I don't think that this was uh, altogether unpremeditated. I think this was something that he had thought through, similarly to uh, when Jesus goes into the temple and he says to them, take these things hence, as he, you know, he, he takes them. The time to make this whip, and he goes in there uh, with with righteous indignation towards uh the 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 people who had been abusing the system that God had set in place in the temple. And he says, take these things hence, don't let this place become a den of thieves when it was intended to be a house of prayer. And Ellen White clearly articulates that Jesus did this with tears in his eyes. It's not with just righteous indignation and rage. It's coming to this place with, you know, emotion and and drive to see God's name glorified and to see sinners saved and that this this abuse of the system was not in any way uh, augmenting that. And while I'm aware of that verse that says that the wrath of man works not the righteousness of God, in this particular context, I believe that Nehemiah was acting under inspiration. And as we can see from his example in the chapters past, he's not a man that acts without thinking. He's not a man that acts without uh, premeditation or foresight. This is something that I believe that he's prayed about and that he's come forth with uh, you know righteous anger um, for seeing God's name vindicated, as well as these people from not having to see the end results of their poor decision-making. So while Everett appears that he's being brutal, at the same time, I believe that it was done with love and with tears in his eyes. And we actually see in the later parts of the chapter that he has the result as these people uh, covenant not to uh, continue to intermarry. And when you see people coming to repentance, you can be sure that it's the result of the Spirit of God working on behalf of the situation. And this is owed to Nehemiah's prayerful consideration before moving forward with such an apparent brutal uh, punishment and public display of uh, retribution. On top of this, it's not as if Nehemiah wasn't known to be correct in his reproving of this intermarriage with pagans, as there's ample text of scripture, Genesis chapter 6 and verse 1 through to 4, and verses 20, 3 and 4 of chapter 24 of Genesis, and Genesis 28, 1 and 2, Deuteronomy 7, 3 and 4, and 2 Corinthians six fourteen. There's There's ample proofs that remind us of God's ideal and his intention when it comes to marriage. Once again, to clarify, we're not here referring to marriage between differing nations as we have ample examples in the Bible of men that married women of foreign descent and how God used that. For example, Moses and Zipporah or Boaz and Ruth. It's not so much about uh, inter-ethnicity as much as it is uh, inter-faith and inter-religion marriages that are herein rebuked. And it's not without valid reasoning either. It's not as though God is withholding things that are good from His children, as He promises. He withholds no good thing. But I'm reminded of the verse that says, Amos chapter 3 and verse 3 Can two walk together except they be agreed? This is the thing. We too often see people. That at least initially, there's no difference in direction. But when you have two people that are going in a different direction, the longer that they travel in that direction, the further apart they inevitably become. And it's kind of like when I used to do uh, flying training, I would find myself um, navigating from one point to another. There's no curves in flying, generally speaking. You go from point to point. You don't go around a corner. And in so doing, I can quite clearly see the track is straight in front of me at the whole time. And basically, when I would find myself deviating from track, the longer it had taken, the more difficult it would be to get back on track. So it's like the same sort of thing in a marriage. You've got two people that are heading a completely different direction. Slowly but surely, you're going to start feeling that tension as it, they start to separate and, 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 and stress on each other. And it makes it a whole lot harder to maintain the original direction and purpose that you had for your marriage or relationship. So what appears like a very small deviation from the track at the start over time becomes a lot greater and more difficult to recover. Moving on to Tuesday's lesson, December 17th, we discuss Ezra's reaction to his uh, hearing of the news of the leadership of the day having been acquainting themselves and marrying and intermarrying with the Canaanites and the Hittites. so We're just going to read verses 1 and 2. When these things were done, the leaders came to me saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives Themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with the peoples of those in the lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. And what a rebuke to the leaders, in the sense that they have a greater responsibility and therefore a greater uh, retribution will be theirs for having made decisions that influence and impact others. There is a greater responsibility for us as leaders to maintain and uphold. Hold integrity and holiness as representatives, so that those who are, uh, I guess, the sheep of the fold that look up to us as under shepherds will be able to see an example of um, purity and, um, I mean no doubt they are responsible in part for their response and their reaction to the leadership of the day. As uh, Paul says, you know, be imitators of me as I'm an imitator of Christ and no further. But at the same time, leaders have a greater responsibility to uphold. And in this context, we see the leaders, the priests and the rulers uh, being the foremost in leading the people astray, which is, you know, only paving the way for an even more rapid descent, into darkness and despair. At this point in time, I think it's important for us to clarify when Ezra is talking about separating themselves from uh, the unbelievers, he's not saying so in the sense that we should be pious and self-righteous in our interactions with them. As Ellen White says, in the book, Sons and Daughters of God, page 165, we should ever feel a deep interest in the salvation of the impenitent and should manifest toward them a spirit of kindness and courtesy, but we can safely choose our friends, only those who are the friends of God. The inevitable consequences of us associating innocently at first is that if we are not careful, those friendships and relationships will be eventually deteriorate our spirituality if we uh, become complacent. The separation that is here being spoken of between the Israelites and the other nations is that of recognizing that we uphold the oracles of God and have a special work in demonstrating his love to the world and having that deep interest therefore in the salvation of the impenitent um, while not allowing ourselves to compromise on belief because we need to be an influence rather than be influenced. Now, it's interesting to see the difference in reaction to Nehemiah and Ezra. So in Nehemiah's case, we see him responding with pulling out the hair and beards of uh, those that have done wrong. And as we discussed, I believe that to be a spirit-led intervention. Whereas in this particular case, Ezra, we see him responding with pulling out his own hair and pulling out his own beard. And I think that verse that says, you know, and it's just interesting the contrast in the sense that. We have one that responds out of righteous indignation, and that indignation he lashes out against those uh, who have done wrong, whereas the alternative is Ezra, who responds with lashing out against, I guess, himself, um, in the sense that he pulls out his own beard and tears his garments and lies down in sackcloth and ashes. And both of those are spirit led. And it's encouraging to me as somebody that sometimes shies away from making decisions on the basis that perhaps it could be the wrong kind of decisions. But the reality is that both these men were men of prayer and men inspired by God to do a certain work. And they were responding very differently in the situation. uh, But at the same time, uh, in accordance with God's will. And that's Encouraging to me that if we're seeking God's will and if we're striving after uh, His purposes for our lives and for the lives of those whom we care about and that we are longing to uh, show salvation to um, and lead to Jesus, that God can work through our decisions whether they are right or wrong. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean uh, right and wrong in the sense of morally, because obviously we're talking about making wrong decisions uh, in a moral sense in this context and we're recognizing that there's some dire consequences. We're talking like just what appears to be the most efficient response to a situation or the most efficient uh, um, decision in a given moment. Um, Not necessarily one of morality, but God can work through it if we are seeking his will and praying for him earnestly for the salvation of others. And this is one thing that was highlighted by one of the quotes from Ellen White. She says that uh, Ezra himself had high and holy motives. In all that he did, he was actuated by a deep love for souls. The compassion and tenderness that he revealed toward those who had sinned, either willfully or through ignorance, should be an object lesson to all who seek to bring about reforms. The servants of God are to be as firm as a rock, where bright principles are involved, and yet... Withal, they are to manifest sympathy and forbearance, like Ezra. They are to teach transgressors the way of life by calculating principles that are the foundation of all right doing, and that's found in Prophets and Kings, page six hundred and twenty-three. And the point is there uh, made quite plain that Ezra was a guy that he was just seeking to 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 uh, bring about God's glory. He was seeking to um, love on those who had fallen into sin, whether by their own volition or by ignorance, so that he could bring about reforms. And it was a deep love for souls. Now, how much strife and how much difficulty would we avoid as a people and as a church if we focused in on striving to actuate our decisions based on a love, a deep love for souls? It would be that that would drive high and holy motives. But all too often, I think we can get a little bit distracted from our calling to that end. Um, And we don't act in compassion and tenderness as we should to those who have fallen into sin. Particularly, I perhaps think of those who have willfully stepped into sin. It's kind of a bit harder to, uh, you know, feel compassion for them. Um, uh, Just humanly speaking, we naturally are inclined to think of them as well you deserve what you get because you made the decision that way but the reality is that uh, we should be striving to uh, uphold principle but dealing and working with those people with sympathy and forbearance what a powerful lesson for us to learn now, one final quote that I just could not breeze over from Tuesday's lesson was regarding uh, the nations surrounding them being mingled with the Israelites. And it says this, that they would have been spared many sad and humiliating experiences. Now, the, the lesson for us is simply this, that um, if we avoid... Uh, upholding God's principles, if we strive to fulfill our own desires and our own directions, we will end up with sad and humiliating experiences. And if we would just take stock and as Ellen White says, we have nothing to fear for the future except we should forget the way the Lord has led us in the past. If we would just take stock and look into the past with other people who have been in similar circumstances and and made decisions in those circumstances and learned from either their blessing or their failure um, the way in which we should go and which which we should tend our footsteps, I think we would avoid a whole rack of sad and humiliating experiences as would the Israelites have avoided in their day, as Ellen White says in the book Prophets and Kings, page 620. And the thing with this is quite pointed in reality. Uh, with a lot of people that make relationships or um, or even marry um, with unbelievers and... <sighs> The number of times that we see people that have made these decisions and have ended up in a difficult and trying marriage uh, years down the track when the paths tend to deviate from one another morally, and yet this continues to be a regular occurrence um, in Christian marriages and even those in Adventism. Now, that's not to say that God cannot work through those marriages, but it's just to simply say that it's difficult. And if you want an easier life for yourself, uh, this is probably not the direction you should be heading. So moving along into Wednesday's lesson referring to how Ezra responds to the intermarriage question. And there's no two ways about it. It seems in our modern day uh, eyesight to be a fairly arbitrary and unfeeling response to those who have already fallen into the trap of intermarrying with pagans in the sense that they decide that they're going to put away their spouses. Now, to clarify, they don't say that they're going to divorce them. They simply say put away in the sense that really these marriages were never actually valid because by law, by the Jewish law they were never they could never have been ratified before God because they didn't uh, follow the original standard and plan. But I think it's worthy of note that it took them three months, as you can read about in verses 18 to 43, uh, for them to carry out this plan. It wasn't just something that they did. Oh, yep, Okay that's it, we're going to make this decision, send all those women away and the kids and good luck to them. Okay, we're scot-free. It was more a matter of like, let's uh, actually make a plan to get these uh, women back to their original families with all the resources and necessary things to look after those children or sustain themselves Thereafter, And the point is profound to us as Christians that when we recognize that we've done something wrong and that we're in the process of making restitution as far as lies within our power, we need to be making sure that we're doing so thoroughly and with forethought. Finally, moving into Thursday's lesson, and we are discussing marriage for today. Now, this is where the encouragement comes to those who are already in a relationship or marriage with an unbelieving spouse, in that they can find that there is purpose and fulfillment in their particular situation, even in spite of perhaps some decisions that they have made that were not in line with God's will, or that were originally, and their spouse or partner has deviated from the pathway. Now, The verses that are primarily focused upon in this particular lesson are found in first Corinthians chapter seven verses ten to seventeen. Now we're not going to read that whole seven verses, but we are going to focus in on just twelve to fourteen. So let's just read those together. First Corinthians seven and verse twelve to fourteen it says, But to the rest I, not the Lord, say, If any brother has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her, and a woman who has a husband husband who does not believe if he is willing to live with her let her not divorce him for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband otherwise your children would be unclean but now they are holy and there's a couple of points here that we need to highlight I believe in closing our lesson study for this week firstly uh it's the fact that when two people are locked in a relationship, such as in a marriage context, it is, whether or not they are heading in the right direction or not, going to be for their good if they are focused on um, the Lord's plan for their life. So uh, in this sense, the, the verse says that the unbelieving wife is purified by the wife and the unbelieving wife purified by the husband. It's not saying that they are therefore saved on account of the fact that they, they uh, have a believing spouse. As you know we all know and very clearly articulated in the Bible that salvation comes individually. But at the same time, there is something to be said for being locked in relationships with people uh, to the growth and development of Christian character. And this is why Paul counsels uh, that we don't leave the, um, the spouse that is unbelieving because there is a chance that they might be saved through patient forbearance. And there's a verse in Proverbs that says, As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. And basically what this verse is saying is that when you put two people together in a situation where they've got to work things out, such as in a marriage context, you are inevitably going to get growth. On, in both parties. For the believer, their character is going to develop in this context. For the unbeliever, you would hope similarly uh, to an extent that they are going to be purified and uh, effectively drawn closer to Jesus on account of being in such close connection with somebody who is in close connection with Jesus. Secondarily, there is a promise here for the children of one of these relationships in the sense that they will have a greater chance towards salvation when they see the comparison between the two parents, one a believer and the other not, in that they can at least see uh, both kingdoms demonstrated in the one household rather than those who do not have um, at least some element of Christianity in the home. And they see only uh, two um, people that are living in rebellion against God, and that's the only example they have to determine their life choices and pathway. So the basic principle here is that for the sake of family, for the sake of development, for the sake of salvation of the lost, it is not wise for the Christian who is within an unequally yoked marriage to leave that marriage unless the spouse determines that they want to leave, in which case then do not prevent them from doing so. In closing, I wanted to just read some words from The Desire of Ages, page 479 and 480, which say that every soul is as fully known to Jesus as if he were the only one for whom the Saviour died. The distress of each one touches his heart. The cry for aid reaches his ear. He came to draw all men unto himself. He bids them follow me, and his spirit moves upon their hearts to draw them to come to him. Many refuse to be drawn. Jesus knows who they are. He also knows who hears his call gladly and are ready to come under his pastoral care. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and he cares for each one as if there were not another on the face of the earth. And I feel like this pretty much sums up the encouragement that each one of us can find in these verses, whether we have seen the result of making bad decisions with marriages or other areas of our life, whether we are uh, the believing spouse or the unbelieving spouse, whether we are the leader in the church that has, uh, has to deal with these difficult circumstances, or whether we are just somebody who's completely outside of all of these factors, but sees it taking place in and around them in their church. And their sphere of influence, whatever the case, we can each take comfort in the fact that Jesus knows our every cry, our every difficulty, our every decision making process, and every one that we have made, He can turn that blunder into a blessing, if so be that it was not in line with his will. May we all grow closer to Jesus as is his desire and as his spirit moves upon our hearts through circumstances, even as difficult as illegitimate marriages, which are unequally yoked, um, as we've seen through the story of Nehemiah and Ezra and their leadership. May God bless you and we will see you again next week. Thank you.